Good morning. So today we're getting, we're staying in Acts to the Future. Um, this this uh, installment we're calling, it says gigawatts, but if you've seen the movie, you know it's gigawatts, right? 1.21 gigawatts. If you haven't seen the movie, that's what it is. So we're going to be talking about a very, I think, widespread subject or topic today. All of us have sought this at some point. All of us have thought about this or wanted this. It's power. From the very beginning, we as humanity have wanted more of it, right? We are all tenants who want to be owners, right? Adam and Eve took of the forbidden fruit from the tree, not because they were just curious, but because they were told if they ate of it, they would be like God. They wanted more power in that. All the way to today, we see our societies, plural, are rife with abuse and improper seeking of power or authority, right? In your own circus of life, none of you want to be the bearded lady, right? You all want to be the ringmaster. That's our goal. We want to run our own show. We want power and authority over our own life. You see it in self-help books, um, selling off, off the shelves. You see it in our own lives, trying to jockey for position. Who's the funny one? Nobody really wants to be the wingman unless they're known as the wingman, all this kind of stuff. And so we all seek power in our own life in our own way. So today what we're doing is we're going back to understand that even as churches try different programs or use different things or try this or try that to try and gain influence or, or authority in their community or a size which equals esteem, which is all just power, the same power that was at the very beginning and founding of the church is the same exact power that today will sustain and grow God's bride. So one person was listening. That's cool. Okay. So... In case you're wondering, my name is not pronounced that way. It's guest T speaker, okay? So, <laughs> yep, that's the joke. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, so go ahead. Enough of me. Let's go ahead and open up. Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. If you didn't bring a Bible but you want a hard copy, there's one in the seat back in front of you, page 909 in that one. Feel free to use the, the church app has a Bible on there. You can use your own Bible app if you have one, or you can just look on with somebody next to you if you want. But it's important because this is the driving and central focus of today, so you're going to want a copy of your own so we can all track together. I've broken this down into three sections so that we can better understand it, take it kind of picture or scene by scene, and just kind of break it down. This is history that we're looking at today, Okay. So sometimes when, we, when you read scripture, you read like in, uh, when we were in Colossians, you, you read Paul telling you to do something. They're like, put to death, therefore, that which is earthly among you. Take all of that earthly junk off, and then as God's chosen people, being holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with. So put on then compassion, kindness, all these different. That's called a prescriptive text where Paul is actually prescribing or the author is telling you to do something. Right? It's very easy to walk away from that understanding the point of that. Well, this morning we're looking again at what's called a descriptive. So Luke is describing to you what he has researched or in some cases in Acts what he's seen. Does that make sense? And so it's a little less easy to just kind of read it at a glance and walk away and say, this is what the Bible is telling me to do or this is what the Bible, how the Bible wants me to live my life. And so as we're going through this this morning, be thinking along the lines of, we're reading this to see how God has acted. God is faithful. And so what principles can be taken from this text this morning and applied to our own lives? And the way we're going to do that is all about context. So 
what matters here? What are some important words? How does this fit with all of history? How does this fit within the larger book of the Bible itself? What are the points here? And then ultimately, how does that help us translate this to today? So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you would call us, and in your grace, give us the courage to follow after you. Lord, as we are all at one point in time in our life in this sinking ship, Lord, you and your grace came to us in the storm and called us out that we could step out of the boat and walk to you and then walk with you, keeping our faces firmly fixed upon you. So, Lord, I would pray that this time, this morning, would be a time of stepping out of our boats, out of our own comforts, beyond ourselves, that we could fully embrace, depend on, and seek after you. Lord, would this text be an encouragement, an exhortation, Lord, to us to live beyond ourselves, to not seek power for ourselves, but to seek you, that you would be known. It's in your name we pray. All right, so chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, I'm calling this deliverance. Here we go, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So I want to break this down. Here we see in plain writing, one read through, we understand that God has delivered the Spirit to his followers. The third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, has now come. He's fallen in this one place where everyone is together, and we see all this epic imagery. But I want to ask the question, why Pentecost? Or asking it another way, why does Pentecost matter? Why does it have to be at this point? A lot of us, I think, when we think of Pentecost, we think of it as a church holiday, right? We all kind of align ourselves with this is when the New Testament church began. This is when the Spirit came and indwelled the believers. But I want us to understand something about that word. Pentecost is not just a Christian holiday. Pentecost is deeply rooted in Israel as an Israeli holiday. And so when they're together on Pentecost, this isn't just like, Hey, on Friday, everybody was joined together, and the Spirit fell, and man, it was epic. Like, what this is actually saying is, on this specific day, this occurred. Now, Pentecost is a piece, it's a piece of redemptive history. So this isn't just a moment in time, but this is a moment in time where God, in a big, unmistakable way, intervened in the history and changed it so that people could know him and have a relationship with him and be redeemed by him. This is a watershed moment. This is a point where all of history was going in one direction, heading like this, and then God intervened and redirected history. Does that make sense? So Pentecost is important for that, but let's understand this. Pentecost is actually a Jewish holiday linked to the Festival of Weeks. Now you're like, oh, yeah. Okay, so the Festival of Weeks, uh, Pentecost, so do you guys know there's, there's something called the Passover in Israel, and that's after 400 years of slavery to Egypt. Egypt calls out to their God. God hears their cry, sets aside a man. That man goes into the wilderness for 40 years after a homicide, comes back having been sanctified by God to lead God's people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. And there's a series of plagues that occur, and the final plague is what we call the Passover. And that's when the other nine didn't work, and so God said, tenth time the charm, I'm sending the angel of death. 
And now Israel, in order to avoid the, your firstborn being killed, you're going, to, you're going to take a lamb, a spotless lamb, and spread the blood of that lamb over the doorpost. And, and when the angel of death comes through, he's going to see that blood, and you'll be spared by the blood of the lamb. So the, the angel of death passes over. Egypt says, get out of here. We don't want you here. So they exit the exodus. They leave. They cross the Red Sea. They, they wander in the desert for 40 days. And after about 50 days, they come to Mount Sinai. And they meet God, where then the Ten Commandments are passed down. And Israel is given her identity. And so now here in the New Testament, what we're reading here on the day of Pentecost... 50 days prior to this specific day was the Passover when Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, gave his life and we were covered by his blood. And we have the opportunity to live under that and thus be spared from an eternity of death and separation from God. Three days later, Christ rose from the dead and he spent time 40 days about appearing to different apostles and teaching them and making them more promises, opening their minds to the scripture so they could better understand it. And then about 50 days later, Two, verse 1 happens. And the church encounters God in a way they haven't before, and the church gains her identity. And so we have all of this epic imagery here, right? This giant rushing, mighty rushing wind fills the entire house where they're sitting. Divided tongues as of fire descend on each one of them. They, they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so Pentecost now is the fulfillment. And, then, and um, if you want to see this, it's in Exodus chapter 19. 17 is really like the beginning of the paragraph. But this is where we get some of our really epic imagery. Now, Mount Sinai, this is where they get their Ten Commandments. This is, this is Pentecost. This is 50 days after leaving Egypt. They're here. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. In this passage, it talks about there were sounds, this mighty trumpet blasts blowing, this whirlwind of events. And so we see the fire, and we see the smoke, and we hear the noise. And all throughout the Old Testament, we recognize that as imagery of the presence of God. And so now here we are. In this place, all together in one place, and suddenly God's presence is made known in an epic way. And so this kind of leads us to this real understanding of verse 4 helps us out with. Real power doesn't come from self-help. Real power doesn't come from following your heart or looking within or trust your feelings, Luke. Real power comes from God. In verse 4, we see the Holy Spirit has descended on them in this imagery of tongues and, and fire. And, and they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Do you notice they were all filled? That's a passive moment. They're receiving this power from God. And it goes on in verse 4, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit of God gave them utterance. And so the power that they have in this is not something that they've conjured up. It's not something they've earned through years upon years upon years of study and practice and study and practice. This ability to speak in tongues is an ability given to them as the Spirit gave it. Does that make sense? And so here we've seen this deliverance, and there's a double entendre there, the deliverance from Egypt for Israel, but then the deliverance of the Spirit to the church here. And then we see the Spirit gives them this miraculous power, but what do they do with it? 
Verse 5 through 11, now we see the display of God's power. In verse 5, we pick up, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native mother tongue language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So what we see here, we have these men from everywhere under the heavens. We see from the very beginning, the very instituting of God's people as the church, God's heart for the nations. God's desire that every tribe, tongue, and nation could hear in a, in a language of their own, in an intimate way, the unmistakably true, mighty works of God. We see here, I believe, a very explicit undoing of the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 11, you have this story of these guys trying to build this tower to the heavens so that they can be powerful. They can have their own name. They can be mighty. And God says, no, that's a no from me, dog, and just comes down and, and tears the temple to pieces, spreads the people all over the world, gives them their own languages to confuse communication so that they can never come together in a way like that to try and build something for themselves again. And now here we see God bringing the nations, bringing people from all over the known world to the city of Jerusalem so that he can do this and communicate to them through these, gent- these Galileans, these people, the mighty works of him so that he can, in an intimate way, communicate his love for them and his desire to have a relationship with them. God has a heart for the nations. I like, uh, I like verse 7. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Right? So to translate that to like modern day, do we have anybody here from Hemet? Okay, perfect, right? So this is like, this is like today, modern day us going, isn't that guy from Hemet? He can barely speak English. How is he, how is he communicating to me in my own mother tongue? Right? Like in the Central Valley, we'd be saying, isn't that guy from Bakersfield? Right? I see you, Jason. I see you. <laughs> so anyway, so there's this, this idea, this, these Galileans are these backwoods, ignorant, uneducated, unesteemed, not powerful, overlooked fishermen. Like they barely speak the language. They communicate better with slang than they do with actual language. They, they use sounds and stuff to communicate. And yet God is choosing to work through them. And the people are amazed. How is it that these guys who can barely speak Greek are communicating with me in my Arabic? How are these people speaking to me in my heart tongue, the language I grew up in that they've probably never even heard of? How are they communicating to me about the mighty works of God? How is this? I've never seen this before. These guys shouldn't be doing it. And so this is, this is one of my favorite things because so often we, I hear people saying, oh, I, I, I can never do ministry like, like Pastor Greg or, or anybody because like, they're a professional. I'm just not that smart. I'm not that capable. 
you're exactly who God wants to use because we all know it's not you, right? Like, we all know it's not your ability. When people look at you and go, ah, there's no way that's John. That's got to be the Spirit of God. There's no way. There's something bigger going on here. There's something more happening here than meets the eye. We need to inquire. I don't understand this. I love it. And how is it, in verse 8, that we all understand them, each of us in his own native language? And then we do this really fun part of Scripture, right? We go into a list. And I think of lists like reading lists, kind of like clapping in songs. Like we start really well, but by the end of the song, like we've just given up. Like, we're waiting for the next song. I'm not clapping. I'm done. You didn't tell me there were going to be three choruses after that bridge. I'm not clapping. Right? But we do the same thing with lists. Right? Verse 9, like, I do it. I can read these. Like, I know what these are. And I skip the list. And we start like, yeah, Parthians and Medes, crazy. Elamites, wow. Residents of Mesopotamia. Okay, more names. Judea, Pontus, Asia, yep, mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, both Jews and Protestants. More names, Cretans and Arabians. Oh, here we go. We hear them telling us, and yet if we would take a time and kind of slow down, take one more step into the text than we normally do when we're reading, we'll understand what goes on here. Picture a modern-day map with the Middle East, with Jerusalem at the middle. You have South, um, you have South Europe there, and then you also have North Africa there, and then you, all the way into Asia. I want to take a moment for us to realize just how vast this group is. The Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, they're from modern-day Iran. That's a trip. And not like hop in an Uber, go to your local airport, fly there. Like, that's like foot. That's moving slowly. Mesopotamia, they'd have to go through Mesopotamia because Mesopotamia is now part of like eastern Iraq. So you have that. Cappadocia, Cappadocia, however you want to pronounce that, that's like modern-day Turkey. Not the, not the sandwich meat, like the country, Turkey. Pontus, that's huge. That's a big region. That's everywhere from modern-day Georgia, not the state in the southern United States, like the country in southern Europe, all the way through Turkey into Russia. Right? So that's a huge grip of potential people or geographic location from which people are coming. After that, we have Phrygia and we have Pamphylia. That's actual, like, Turkey nowadays. Egypt, that's... Egypt, yeah. Libya is modern-day Libya, so that's like North Africa. And then you have people coming from Rome or Italy, so, so that's, that's southern Europe. Now picture that. So in the far north, you have people coming all the way from potentially Russia for this Pentecost. You have people coming all the way from like Iran for Pentecost, all the way from North Africa for this holiday, all the way from Europe for this holiday. And you can't help but think as they're traveling there, they're wondering... Is it worth it for this holiday? Is it really worth it to go through all of this for this religious thing? Sleeping on the ground, pillow for rocks. If you're not walking, you're riding a donkey or a mule, maybe a camel. Not comfortable. Weather, bandits, is it worth it? Also, that you can come to Jerusalem and suddenly God breaks through in a way you would have never expected him to break through. And now he's communicating to you about his mighty works and how great he is in your heart language. And so there's this verse. 
um, in Exodus again that I want us to understand. At the beginning of this, in verse 11, the beginning of the church, both Jews and proselytes are here. So we don't just have a bunch of Jews from all over the world, from their many exiles coming back to Jerusalem for this. We have people of different ethnicities, people of different historical backgrounds, people of different religious backgrounds and stuff who kind of, they've converted to the, the Jewish faith to come for this holiday. At the very beginning of Israel, we had the same thing. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So we've got this mixed multitude of people. It's not just this one pure, everyone can trace their lineage back to Abraham group of Israel. We have people who were potentially slaves from other nations brought into Egypt, who then by proximity learned about the Jewish faith and then converted to Judaism. And then other potentially Egyptians who were slave owners who were soft-hearted toward the Jewish faith, who then also left with them because of relational ties and stuff at the very beginning of Israel. And now here, at the very beginning of what we know as the church, God is bringing nations, people of every different tribe, tongue, and nation back in to this fold of Jerusalem so that they can experience the power of God's spirit. And you'll notice just based on verse 7 alone, this is nothing pointing to the apostles. This is not something like, wow, these guys are so brilliant. It's like these guys are way too ignorant to be able to do this on their own. They're telling me in my own mother tongue the acts, the mighty acts of God. And so this is the second point. Not only does real power not come from us, but come from God. Real power doesn't point to us. It points back to God. Jesus himself tells us, in this way you should live, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So real power doesn't point to us. Real power should not be about us. Real power is pointing to and making known Christ, God. And so we have this massive display in which we actually, if we read carefully, we realize the speaking in tongues isn't the end. It's the means And the end is that all the nations would hear in their native, intimate language, unmistakably, the mighty acts of God. And then we go into this third and final section, these detractors. In verses 12 and 13. And all who were there, this great multitude, were amazed and perplexed or confused, saying to one another, what does this mean? Yet others, mocking, said they're filled with new wine. They're drunk. So verse 12, I think there's a really clear principle. Everybody, regardless of how massive and and comprehensible and understandable this miracle and speaking in tongues is, the mighty power of God still needs explanation. In your life today, people are going to see you by God's grace and power, holding it together in an otherwise forgettable instance in your life. Staying when other people who don't have the power of Christ would leave. Loving when other people who haven't been indwelt by the Spirit of God would walk away. And they're not going to understand the mighty power of God. And so it's your opportunity to explain how God's influence in your life by the Spirit enables you to live beyond yourself in this devotion to Him. But we also have detractors here in verse 13. Everyone's amazed, everyone's perplexed, everyone's confused. But others, mocking, said, they're drunk. And this is another really difficult point, I think, for us to sometimes understand. 
that those who don't want to know the truth, they will never accept it. People who, who ask these smokescreen questions, who don't really want to engage the truth. Jesus tells us about this in his conversation with Nicodemus. We all know John 3.16, right? This, this verse of love. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that if you would just believe in him, you could have eternal life. You wouldn't perish. But then he goes on and he's explaining this difference between the, the world and, and Christ's kingdom. And he says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out. There are people in this world who don't want anything to do with Christianity. And they say they have questions, but what the questions are are smokescreens so they can try and escape the situation. Because there are people in the world who don't want to feel guilt. Because they don't understand that God allows us to feel guilt so that we can then experience his grace as we ask and live in his forgiveness. So Jesus is telling us there are people who won't come near what you're doing if you're, if you're obeying God. There are people who just like this are going to try and come up with some half-cocked explanation for why they don't understand the way you're living or the things you're doing when you're living by and, and serving in the spirit of God. So others will do this. Others will live like this. So we have all these, these different truths. And, and now with all the context of the historical context and the greater image here with, with the way Peter, I love, responds. And, and you have to come next week because next week's text is even better than, than my sermon at all. So that next week's going to be so good. So you got to be here for that. And, but we see the way that this is an opportunity and, and how we should respond in love and in the spirit. But ultimately we need to understand this. It's not about us. Real power achieves God's purpose. Christ promises us in the scripture, God makes known to us that no word will return void. All authority in heaven and earth belongs to Christ. And so real power achieves a real purpose. God's power achieves lasting, eternal results. So we have all these, these contexts. We have this understanding now. Now let's take a moment and let's translate it to our context. So how this better helps us love Christ, how this better helps us live for Christ, and then ultimately how this helps us better share Christ. We can better love Christ because we understand that Christ is trustworthy. There's only one promise so far in this book of Christ that hasn't been fulfilled. And let me tell you, he's coming back. Jesus will return. Every other promise in this book has been fulfilled. The promise of Jesus ever since the fall of man, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, Christ is promised. Christ came. Christ's perfect life was called, was promised. Christ lived the perfect life. His death, centuries before that means of death was even invented, was promised. And Christ died the gruesome death. But his resurrection also was promised. Christ himself promises it in every single gospel. Christ died and he was resurrected. And then, like in this passage today, Christ's promise of the Spirit, whether it be in John 14 when he says, hey, it's better that I go because I can send my Spirit. Or whether it's in, in Acts 1.8, hey, don't worry about when the kingdom's going to be restored to anybody, but you'll receive power 
when the Spirit comes on you. And that power is for a reason, to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. God's power will achieve God's purpose. And this should better help us love him. You can't love somebody you can't trust. Be honest. When it gets hard, are you going to lean in? When it gets difficult, are you going to lean into that? Are you going to work through it? Are you going to set your focus because you trust somebody or because you can't trust somebody? Christ has proven himself over and over and over and over that he is trustworthy. And so when it's difficult, when you want to give up, when you want to walk away, when you don't believe that, that God is with you or that God is for you because life is so difficult, I want to promise you, I want to encourage you, I want to tell you, lean into him because he's trustworthy. And his purpose will be achieved. And so you can love with abandon. The one who you know loves you more than you could love yourself or love him even. He gave his life for you because he loves you that deeply. He rose from the dead for you so that he could be with you for eternity. So this text shows us Christ is trustworthy. Christ is somebody in whom we can place all of our trust. You see in the very beginning, 2-1, that's linked to chapter 1, verse 14, where we see these people devoted to prayer and community. And it's in the community here at Olive Branch or in your, your small groups that you can better learn to trust Christ and better learn how he's fulfilled his promises and better learn how in the difficult times you can lean in, you can hold fast to the promise that's been given you. So we can love him because he's trustworthy. Second, we can live better for him because we know that Christ is with us. Christ promises, hey, if it's just me, I'm physically here, I can't be with all of my followers, but when I go and I send my spirit, then I can be with all of my followers. And so as we live our day-to-day life with the daily grind or whatever, whatever your day-to-day life is, school or work or, or home life or, or commuting because you spend more time on the 91 and 15 now than you do at work anyway, all of this kind of stuff, you can trust that Christ is with you and your heart can be moved as you commute to work because you know the cars aren't moving. And so we have this daily knowledge that Christ is with us, and so we better live for him. Not just because we trust his spirit, but because when we realize that Christ is with us, I think we are all going to live a little differently. I don't think any of us would really, with the knowledge that Christ is actually truly with us, allow our friends, family members, or coworkers to slag him off. I don't think if we truly believe that Christ is with us, we would take the shortcuts at work. We would do the gossip at work, we would cuss at the guy who cut us off, even though he had his blinker, right? Because you know Christ is with you. Christ is living within you, and, and by his spirit, you can trust that even that moment is part of his will for your life, and so it can enable you to better live for him in your context. And then ultimately, if we're loving him, and if we're living for him, the power in your life is going to necessitate an explanation, and so that's when we can better share him. And this is my encouragement to you in sharing Christ. I used to think of uh, gospel um, sharing, evangelism, as like sales, right? You have the soft clothes. Is there anything else I can get you, right? And then you have the hard clothes. Let me walk you to the counter, right? And that's like, is there anything else in your life you'd like to talk about me? Okay, let's pray this prayer, right? So we have, but really gospel living and sharing is casting seed, Now, are you responsible for not casting weeds? Yes. 
But as we live our life, we sow the gospel in the lives prayerfully of those around us. And when they see God's power in our life, we understand that this evangelistic lifestyle, this life on mission is about Christ being known. It's about Christ gaining esteem. It's about Christ being the Lord. And we understand that in all of this, if God's power is going to achieve God's purpose, Christ will be glorified even if we are not. It's about Christ being front and center. It's about Christ being lifted up. It's about Christ being put on display. It's about our lives being lived in obedience to him. And once we step out of ourselves, once we step beyond our own sphere of influence, once we step beyond our own power, that's when we start experiencing God's power. Would you bow your heads? Maybe for some of us here this morning, we have not, you've not experienced this power of God in your life, but you realize that you want it. And it's through this this devotion to him, when 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 you realize you're coming to the end of yourself, your power is a sinking ship, and God is calling you out of that. Ask God for the courage to step out in obedience to him. It go, it's simple. It goes like, like this. You admit and you confess what you're already thinking. You just externalize this. You can do it in your thoughts. That God, I have messed up. I have tried to do this in my own power. And I realize that my own power has pushed me down a track toward destruction. But God, in my own power, having broken that relationship with you that you desire, Lord, I want to step out of that. I want to step beyond myself so that I can step into your authority. I no longer want to seek me. I want to seek you, God. I no longer want to pursue my things. I want to pursue those things that are of you. It's as easy as praying a prayer just like that, that you can step from brokenness into wholeness, that you can step from powerlessness into God's power. And if that's you this morning, I would pray that you would take that step. And that step isn't just away from sin, but you step away from sin and you step into a community of believers. And so the next thing you do, and after having prayed this prayer, you reach out to those around you in community here at Olive Branch, you let us know so that we can walk alongside you, so that we can celebrate with you, so that we can weep with you when you weep, and we can rejoice with you and party with you when there are things in life to party about. You can do that through either the card in the back of the seat or reach out to us. There are people all around who would love that. And if you want right now, you can even just raise your hand so that we can better walk alongside you. Maybe for those of us who we've given our lives to Christ and we've experienced that power, but for some reason our devotion, our desperation has gone cold. I would want to encourage you to reach out as well. It's easier for you. You've made this connection. You have this relationship with Christ, but you want it deeper. You want it stronger. You want more power from him for your life. I would recommend that you reach out to us with the prayer in the back 
or you reach out to the people beside you or you get into a small group if you're not so that you can live life with others. Heavenly Father, we're before you asking that you would move in our lives, that you would change us to be more like you, and that ultimately, Lord, we would look beyond our own strengths, understanding that it's in our weakness that you are strong, that we would step out in obedience to you. It's in your name we pray.